Welcome, Welcome to, to the Better, Better Call Daddy Show. This is Big Daddy. Oh my God, that's hysterical. More stories you are not going to believe. And advice that you didn't know that you needed. Five stars. Five and a half stars. We're creating a legacy one call at a time. Here comes my daddy. Your problem is, is that you like me. My dad is my hero. He'll always be there to take your call, and you'll never be in too much trouble if your dad is around. Oh, boy. Hey, hey, hey. I think I'm a pretty cool dude. Better call daddy. The safe space for controversy. This is your host, Rena Friedman-Watts. No, this is your host, Celia Watts. More inspirational stories, more daddy drama, and more laughs. Hey, a lot of these things, I don't know where you're getting them from. It sounds like they're coming from when I look in the mirrors. Damn the public. Damn the public. (laughs) Sometimes in order to be able to smell a crook a mile away, you have to work for the crooks and the good guys. Introducing Chris Smith. He's been featured in USA Today. He's spoken at hundreds of conferences. You guys are in for a treat. Chris, welcome. Hi. Rena. Is it Rena? It is. Awesome. That's an easy one. Thank, thank you. Mine's always so easy. Chris, <laughs> you know, Smith. People don't believe it's real. Yeah. I'm sure it can sometimes be hard to find you. Yeah. Well, it's caused some trouble. Tell me about it. Well, I was trying to get a really important job and they awkwardly had to ask me if I had ever been arrested for sexual abuse of a child. And I sort of had to prove that I had I didn't live in South Carolina at a certain like chunk of time because his middle name was Ryan, also born in the same year. That's probably the most interesting story. Well, at least you didn't like look like the guy and then they just like knocked you down at like a stoplight or something. Yeah, exactly. I wish they would have had his picture. I'm sure they did somewhere, but my employer didn't have it. So they needed me to like fill out a form. That's not me. (laughs) You know, I don't know. It was awkward. It really was. But I understand. It's a very common name. Yeah. So I have an uncommon name. So I just get Mm -hmm. like mispronunciations. I don't know what anyone else would say besides Rena. But clearly they're all wrong if they don't say it that way. It's phonetic, but I have gotten like Rini and Renee. Yeah. What was it like growing up having a dad that was a cop? Well, it's interesting because I'm in marketing and branding and positioning. And I would say that the brand of being a cop has gotten a lot worse since he was a cop. So I, I think my dad probably had a better experience overall in the sense that there wasn't this, Just, I mean, there's always been problems. But it just feels like in the last 10 to 15 years, and then especially with the George Floyd kind of pinnacle, the brand of being a police officer, it just feels different when you're, you walk into the room with one or when one walks in. Whereas I feel like in my dad's era, it was a little bit more like, you know, really to serve and protect all and at least where we were. And, And we lived in a town where there was racial divides and there was certainly areas you stay out of, you know, that are, that are really dangerous. So I think that having a cop, you get the truth about the world. You see it through someone else's lens and through stories. And my dad's always been a really moral and ethical guy, a good guy, a nice guy, you know, born in 1952. So he's 70. And I just, you know, there for 33 years. That's the other thing that blew me away was the longevity of the careers. You know, he went from traffic cop to motorcycle to investigator to homicide you know sergeant there's all these levels that you can unlock but there's only one chief you know there's only like a couple lieutenants i don't don't remember the exact order but you know getting above sergeant is very difficult and then getting anything above that is is very rare and i think my dad was just very 
happy. He had two kids that he loved and, you know, a life that he was satisfied with. And I, I don't think he ever had the hunger that I have sort of always had for success in professional setting. You know, he was a very good cop, you know, by all accounts at the end of the day, I don't think he was ever driven by wanting to be a millionaire, wanting to start his own business, wanting to be known and have followers. And, you know, that's just not part of his life. He already checked the box. Like my grandpa was a mechanic and my dad leveled up and his kids leveled up. That's, that's sort of like kind of the whole goal. So he seemed to be very happy leveling up from where he came from and then pushing his kids up higher. That, that's you, sort of my dad in a nutshell. Have you thought about that as a dad? You know, switching to being the parent, <laughs> it's very, very different because now they're growing up in this household. I grew up in a middle-class household, but you don't have that much money when you're a cop. It doesn't pay that good. And my stepmom was a cop too. So I actually had two squad cars in the driveway. I should feel incredibly safe or incredibly vulnerable. You know, I had no idea, but it was, it was just all around me. And so when I think about my own kids now, now they're growing up seeing more money, very few to zero conversations about bills. And if we're going to be able to, that we need to save and be really frugal. And we are, because that's what we came from, me and my wife. So we are, but finances are not a stress in our household and they haven't been. And if you have a nice house and a nice car and, you know, eventually your kids figure out that you make good money. Right. And so their life is not my life. You know, if I were to choose their life for them, we would probably end up in some capacity working together and they would, you know, be a part of call it my empire, you know, of, of businesses that I build and run, but I want them to want that. You know, right now, that's not sort of their, they don't want to be a mini me. They want to be a, a, a them, you know, a one of one. And I, I admire that. So it's, you know, there's me pushing a lot of capitalism. There's a big push for socialism. You know, it, it's sort of fascinating our family dynamic. I once heard a guy that I love listening to. He's a sportscaster named Colin Cowherd. He's huge, like the number one guy. And he basically said on social issues, I'm a Democrat and on financial decisions, I'm a Republican. And unfortunately it doesn't work that way, but that would be a really good way to do it. If you could, if you could sort of do it that way, you know, you can't have both is what they keep telling me. Can't do both of these, but yeah, I think my kids, you know, present and future is very TBD and they do not feel like they've made it or they're successful. They do not feel like they've found their call. They don't have inner peace. They're still discontent in their life journey to figuring out what, why they're here. You know what I'm saying? And maybe one day they wake up and figure out that it's to be a part of my life and to do such cool things that I get to do. I get to do crazy stuff, unfair. But maybe he, I, I could also see my son just doing the go to Tokyo and teach English for a year and maybe never returning. That would be a Lucas move. So we'll see. It's exciting to try to predict it, but I have no idea. I have no idea where they'll end up, but I do know that their hunger is different than mine. Hmm. I would say their hunger is more for personal success. Mine was for professional success. Where do you think that came from? The other half of my time when I wasn't with my dad in the sort of suburb middle-class environment, the other half of my time, I was in trailer parks with my mom. You know, I saw people that were very poor and I saw how different their life was than mine. And I saw that my mom was in situations she probably wished she wasn't in. And, and you know, I, I could see how you could sort of get stuck relying on someone else to sort of provide for you at the level that you want to be at versus 
if you become a sole provider, you know, for yourself, you know, you have to kind of go two levels down, let's call it. And yeah, so I think seeing that other side of the world and all the cool and bad things that come along with that environment, I think that's probably a little bit like it kind of, it wasn't that it scared me. It was just that clearly the people that have money, the, you know, the people in the middle class, like my every other weekend was my mom. Actually, I live with my dad. It just seemed less stressful. Didn't seem better per se, by the way. Some of the happiest kids I ever met were the trailer park kids with the dirtiest feet. I remember one time we crawled up into a tree house he had made and there was a Playboy inside the floor panel. Like, this is awesome. This is life. You know what I mean? So I, I don't just look at it like, I don't want to be this. It wasn't really that. It was more learning from each of them and then figuring out what I wanted to be. And I decided that I wanted to shoot for the moon because, and the quick answer would be because my friends became famous and rich when I was young and I was jealous. So I wanted to be too. That's, that's really probably one of the biggest driving factors. I had professional athlete friends and Philadelphia Eagles, Philadelphia 76ers, you know, UCLA, Georgia Tech, you know, all these amazing schools and, and playing professional. We are from a very small place. You know, people make fun of Polk County where I'm from and it's a lot of orange groves and it's a lot of cow pastures and it's a lot of chicken farms. And, you know, the, the acronym that I use in my talks is people of little knowledge. That was some, what somebody told me it stands for. And so, you know, we're not an intellectual town. And so the athletes are where it's at. You know, if mm. you want to become rich and famous, that's probably your only bet. You know, I just naively thought I would be a basketball player because I was on the team and I was pretty good, but you know, I was the 12th best player out of the 12 players. So it's sort of like, I, you know, I looked at it like I was better than everybody, but 12 people, but you know, it kind of felt like I was the worst when I never got in and sat the bench every game, you know, that's, that's no fun at all. But I think what I've done is sort of equally shot for the moon and then had that self-awareness check, that reality check. And as opposed to like putting the blinders on and just saying, I'm going to push through this. I don't care. This is the only thing that'll make me happy is if I become an NBA player. I just realized I never was going to be, even though I loved it. It was my passion. It was my goal. It was my dream. But I was six feet and my nickname was slow-mo. I was going to ask how tall you were. <laughs> I'm six feet. I'm not fast. I could shoot good. That was basically, I could pass good, shoot good, decent defend at best. But if I went to the playground, I was usually one of the best ones and, you know, just sort of scored all the points and stuff like that. So I was really good. Just our high school is known for athletics. And so, yeah, I got jealous. My friend Freddie went to UCLA and he was at the Playboy Mansion and he was hanging out with Mario Lopez and he was driving Ferraris and he was meeting movie producers and he was meet. So he was, and he was my really good friend. We really trusted each other and, and knew each other really well. And so I think him being out there before me and sort of me hearing about that network he was building and watching those accolades and watching those sort of call it media appearances where, oh, you know, now all of a sudden my friend's on TV. Now all of a sudden my friend is hanging out with Elizabeth Hurley, you know? And so that was wild. And in my brain, I'm like, well, I obviously am going to end up taking advantage of this friendship and helping him, you know, because my skills are very different than his, you know? But the, the way I thought about, like, I didn't want to, you know, feed off of someone else. Already plenty of people doing that. So when I got into college and I was getting towards the end of college, I decided to be become an actor. 
I want to and hear about that chapter. I hope you're not about to pull up a clip, Rena. Uh, do you, you I wish I could. There's clips <laughs> of me that thank God me? happened before the internet. <laughs> well, yeah, I had to go back and pull clips and doctor it up. But I was on Buffy as an extra, but in a in a prominent role as an extra. I was on the Drew Carey show. I was in a movie called Looney Tunes, like a half live action Brendan Fraser. I was on all kinds of movie sets. And, you know, I, I will say one thing for the audience is if you're listening to me and you're thinking that like, this dude's no better than me, like that's a good thought to have, but like, don't take it out on me, turn it back at you and prove it. You Ooh, know, so my dad will like that line. <laughs> I mean, that's the whole thing because I'm over here talking this huge game. I'm a basketball player, made the team, you know, and a hard team to make. Going to be an actor, moved to Hollywood. Next thing you know, hey, Buffy, what up? Sarah Michelle Geller. I'm on set with her. Katherine Heigl. You know, I'm meeting these people. And again, I'm having the same thought. I could do this. These people are no better than me. They're no different than me. They're just a person like me. And, but then I would go to acting class. I just want to say like, that that is totally like the thoughts of a 20 year old too. Of course. Like I was like that also. Like I moved to LA with the stars in my eyes and I was like, why can't mm -hmm. I? I just they say you're green. That That's possible. what they all think. You're green. That's what they kept telling me. You're so green. It's so cute. Like, you know, because you're not jaded yet. Exactly. Yeah. And I got jaded pretty quick because I, it was actually crazy. I ended up just hiring a photographer to do my headshots. I met this really nice lady named Barbara who happened to be using the guy too on the same day. She liked me and invited me to an acting class with this guy named Sal Landry. I have no idea who these people are. And so I go in there. I don't know what it's like. I'm like, I'm an actor. Sure. Of course. I'll come to acting class. That's what actors do. See you there. And it was like at a kickboxing studio. It was like, it was so cool. So I go in and these scenes they were doing in this little training class and this kind of learning environment with Sal, they were so good. It was so good that you would have just given them the Oscar if you're sitting there. And this is after getting a script from Sal. He takes a script. They don't know what he's going to give them. And he gives them their sides. And they got 15 minutes to go and huddle and come back and, and do the scene. You know what I'm saying? And they don't have to memorize it. You can hold it. But they get up there. And that's why I'm like, man, he's holding the thing in his hand. I know it doesn't end up on the screen like that, but he's great. The thing in his hand was not a distraction because he was nailing it because they were professional actors. And my friends were professional athletes. So I had to become a professional salesperson, a professional entrepreneur, a professional business person. Because when I was in that room with those actors, I mean, Dolph Lundgren, you know, I don't know if you know who that is, the, the Russian from Rocky Five, he yeah. was in the class. Wow. The mom, I forget her name, Doris, I believe is her first name. I'm telling you, I don't know these people. She was on Everybody Loves Raymond. I'm like, damn, this lady, I'm looking at this lady. And then I went home and, you know, Googled it. And I was like, oh my God, these are real actors. Like for real. And it was like, they were sharpening their axe. Think about this guy, Rocky five, the Russian from Rocky five. He's a legend. He was in the expendables. He's been in several films. He studies the craft and he's actually, he's become good at it. You know what I'm saying? I just kind of assessed very quickly. They're here. I'm here. I would love to be where they're at. And that's probably what it's going to take to become a real actor. And so I'm out. I, I think I was there 18 months. That's it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I did all that stuff in 18 months, party with all these movie stars, met all these athletes, you know, Freddie really showed me a great time. You know, it was the right decision to move out there because it showed me again, oh, these kids out here at UCLA, all these actors, they're not, they're not better than me, you know? So I just always keep thinking that. And now I think it about 
business people, but I don't think of it in a spiteful way. I don't think of it as they suck. I think of it as, oh shit, I'm kind of that good. Like I'm kind of a better speaker than that guy. And he's more famous than me. I should keep going. I just think of it that way. It is interesting when you notice your talents and when you start to sharpen your sword, like you said. I have an incredibly unique skill set. Like the guy in that movie, when he says, I, I have an incredibly set of skills, he's a, he, I think he's an assassin or something, Liam Neeson. The one movie he did that was great, Taken. Oh, I love that movie too. Great movie. Everything's worse than that, that he's done. Some of the old stuff, the good, but just that, that vibe, Taken. It's a good movie. I have a unique skill set and I actually honed it in on a niche. So it's like, I focus on the intersection of marketing, sales, and technology. So I don't actually do what most people do, which is they either are marketing or sales, right? And then you have all these tech people too, you know, the systems required to do those two things. And so I just sort of study, how do you do the best marketing so that it creates the best experience for your sales team? You know, and how do you put the technology in place just so you don't screw up? And like, that's just sort of the table stakes. That's just the X's and O's. That's the wires, right? The technology piece of lead routing, lead scoring, CRM, email marketing tools, all those tools, you know, those are sort of required, you know, it's 2023, right? And beyond, hopefully people listen, 2025. You, If you're listening in 2025, thank you. But yeah, so I just looked at, I don't know. I, I hope that answers the question. I do go off on tangents a bit. Yeah, I, I'm sure you've seen that so far. Yeah, you're so allowing me to. You left LA. I mean, yeah. And then how did you end up at the boiler room? I tried to start a business with Freddie and it was a very ambitious project. We basically were taking a concept that we found in LA that Freddie found when he was out there. And it was one of the best experiences he had ever had in his life. And he had never seen it anywhere else. And he wanted to turn it into a franchise. So, so sort of build it in a college town, not UCLA, because that's like way too expensive, but like build it in a college town. It was perfect for like socials, fraternities and sororities. Like I, I think it would quickly become a staple in these college towns. And the, the sort of uniqueness was private karaoke. So mo have you ever done private karaoke? Not at your house, at a bar, out. Yeah, club, yeah, yeah, I have. Yeah, did you like it? That was, yeah, in my wilder days. <laughs> yes, me too. And it probably was like three in the morning. It was shady, right? A little bit, but it's so fun. I had never done it. And I, I went with my buddy, Ed, and we went to Koreatown. And he brought me with him. And I, I was the only white person there. And it was three in the morning. They opened up the room for us. We went in, bottle service. We're singing the songs. And I had a blast in that What sort was your of, song? I don't know. I don't remember. I don't have a song. I don't have a song. At that point of the night, every song was my song. So I'm just experiencing this. And it was just like, man, it's almost like an escape room. Or like, a, you know, it's when you do these things you've never done. And you're in one of your thoughts is, man, other people would love this. And I bet they've never done it. That's how I felt the first time I had Brazilian steakhouse, where they cut the meat onto your plate, and they just keep bringing it, you flip over the like red or green, you know, to tell them to keep coming or not, you know, that's a great experience. And, and I think that that experience that happens in Koreatown in LA is, is, is amazing. And I, I think it would have made a really good concept for, for a business. I think it could have done really well to do private karaoke, but more of like a Applebee's vibe. Like, it, like if Buffalo Wild Wings was exactly how it is, but over in the corner, there was like eight private karaoke rooms. 
So it's, you know, it's not just that, you see what I'm saying? Had this whole concept. Anyway, it failed miserably. It was ambitious. We had to buy a liquor license. We had to buy a building. We had to buy all the equipment. We had to try to find the staff. You know, me and a couple of buddies were working on it. His brother was helping me with it. And my friend, Brian, we were working on it. We were working hard on it. And Freddie was funding it and it wasn't much money for us. It was expensive as hell for the stuff he was doing. That's why we didn't even really want to get paid. It's like, dude, I think the building was like, you know, very, very expensive. I know how much it was. And so it was like, we were just getting enough to get by, which I think was the fair thing to do. Cause there was only so much we could do on our end. I mean, we were kicking the can down the road, but I, I don't know if you ever done a commercial real estate deal. They're not the fastest things. They don't go down quick. It just, no matter what. It takes a while. And so it kept dragging out and dragging out and dragging out. And we got to the part that's actually the most expensive part, which is building the build out. And it isn't that it's the most expensive part per se. I would say the building, you know, liquor license in Florida is over six figures. They're very exclusive and hard to get. They very rarely open up. It's like a lottery system. Oh my so God. it's six figures for that. And then the building was expensive. And so, but those things are a little easier to finance because those are an asset that you could resell. See what I'm saying? Resell the building. If things go mm -hmm. to hell, resell the liquor license, maybe even for more. You know what I mean? So those are good. Those you can go to the bank or go to an investor and it makes a ton of sense. And that was actually fairly easy to pull off. The part that's hard to get other people's money for is a million dollars, let's call it worth of TVs, floors, architect, like the architectural renderings that we did you know, that then gets priced out and specced and how much would it cost? And when you bring that particular part of the business plan around, that is very, very difficult to get financing for. And, and that is a, you know, that is not something that you should just cut a check for you know I mean? it's, because it's so much, it would, it would kind of fall into the typical athlete, bad decision. The other two are good decisions. That would have been a bad decision. That's why we're trying to find investors who want to be a part of it. We couldn't pull it off. And so eventually we had to give up. I had to move back home and move back into my parents' house and live on the couch, not on the couch, but I was on my parents back in my old room. And then how did I get into sales? Well, at that point I was pretty much back to square one and, and fairly desperate. So I just did what everybody does when they're looking for a job. And I live in central Florida and Orlando and Tampa are on either side of me. So I was able to sort of search where I lived plus those places. And a job came up in Orlando. It was, you know, unfortunately a 90 minute drive in a beat up car that barely worked. And it was for a guy named Lou Perlman. I was in his boiler room doing phone sales, selling event vacations to aspiring actors, comedians, people from all over the country that wanted to be the next Britney Spears, the next Backstreet Boys, the next NSYNC. Lou Pearlman is the person who discovered all of them. And so he was this huge name in the music industry. Also a horrible person, documented for multiple things that I don't even want to talk about. But if you want to Google the Lou Pearlman story, enjoy. Go to Howard Stern, search for Lou Pearlman story. It's really bad. He did some bad stuff. He was really good at making money. That's how you become a billionaire. <laughs> so long story short, I'm in his I'm in his little boiler room doing these sales calls to these people that want to come down to Orlando to do the event. And his sales coach, I mean, this guy should be in the sales hall of fame. You know, this guy might be the GOAT 
of sales. Seriously. He was from a generation past. I will say that he was more Glenn Gary, Wolf of Wall Street than what a modern salesperson and coach needs to be. But by learning the old school stuff, it was priceless. I mean, it was amazing. The stuff I was learning was like, I mean, this guy was epic. And every morning he would come in and do a little lesson about sales. He spent 10 or 15 minutes. He'd grab a piece of chalk. He'd get open his chalkboard. And a lot of the lessons that you'll learn in my book, when you kind of start learning about my journey, I almost lead with that. It's like, I've been doing this a long time. Most stuff doesn't stick with you. Here's the stuff that stuck with me. And a lot of it came from those billionaires where I was in the boiler room and it was one little phrase or one little drawing or one little way to say something and why. Right. And they were just brilliant, you know? And so I was just a sponge. I was a sponge. But again, back to sort of knowing when to fold them, I was very uncomfortable in that environment. You know, I, I took the job, you know, naively not really doing my homework on how it really was. And so as I was working there for a while, all of a sudden, some of the people start talking that you work with and you start Googling, you start, oh, ripoff report. Look at all these things on ripoff report. Look at all these complaints with the Better Business Bureau. Oh, they changed their name. They used to be called Wilhelmina Models. Now they're called Fashion Rock. Why'd they do that? Right? So I just started going down this rabbit hole and I'm like, it's like, once again, you know, like I thought I had my thing. I made $4,000 in one week. The guy was like throwing hundreds at me, like Leo, you know, in Wolf of Wall Street. It was crazy good. But once I found that stuff out, it was almost like it put a pit in my stomach that I couldn't get rid of. Like I understood the game and I understood how it worked and why it worked so well. But th there was this one big thing that they left out that was critical. And it was, should the person do this? Can they sing? Are they pretty? Are they funny? Are they, you know, beautiful? Like, cause it's That's singing, really amazing acting. that it bothered you at 25. Well, it just didn't make sense that you would invite someone to come sing and not at least have them sing while you got them on the phone. And they wanted to, they would try to sing for me. They think I lose standing next to me or something. You so got your karaoke over the phone. <laughs> No, but you know what we do say? No, 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 no. I'm not a talent agent. I'm actually here to figure out if you're the right person to bring down. And I, my job is to bring people that are enthusiastic. I, I actually don't judge talent. There'll be talent scouts there that do that. Lou, the people like, I didn't say this word for word, but so your job is to sell me on why we should give you a ticket. And so it just became this like. That's an interesting <sighs> dynamic. It was wild. It was wild. And then we would be on the call. And th this is wild. We would say, so what have you been doing at the local level? Have you had any success there? Why not? What have you done? What else have you done? Is it, you know, why do you think you should be a model if you haven't done much at the local level? And so all of a sudden, you know, they're just selling me. And literally, this is wild, Rena. I would say, okay, Nicole, I'm going to talk to my boss. Her name's Devin. And we're going to talk about, you know, everything you just told me. And then she's going to hop on the phone with you. She makes the final decision, not me. So you don't have to re-explain everything. I'm going to give you, I wouldn't go grab her if I didn't think you were good, but you know, you kind of got to win her over. This is so much like casting. And then all of a sudden I had to put the phone on hold. I would say, Hey, Devin, come here. <laughs> right across the table. Model. Yeah. Like, I think we're going to give her the thumbs up. So there was no vetting at all. Right. And so Devin would get on and, you know, ask her another question or two and say, well, you know, Chris and I talked, we're going to, you know, we'll give you our final answer. Give us, give us 30 seconds. I, I do want to talk to him before we decide. And so just hold. Yep. I don't even know what the hell they were here when they were on hold. They might've just been hearing nothing. The whole music and wasn't there yet. Right. It was like landline. 
Yeah. So I would come back and, and I would say, Hey, Nicole, I talked to Devin, you know, this is a big event. There's a lot of people that want to come. I told you there's 65,000 people that apply. There's only 1200 spots. So, you know, this is not an event for everyone. I want you to factor that in when I tell you that we want you to come that, that literally that's how it went. So now Nicole's screaming wow. excited, right? Yep. She's excited. She's jumping out of her chair, excited. Oh my God. Wow. Thank you. Crying. <laughs> Sometimes grabbing their family. Come here. They this just got the golden deal. ticket. Yeah. Right. Meanwhile, I have seen her, but you know, oh models, my God, we don't need to see him. So, so she then is, and you have to picture like a chart, right? And this is in my book. It's called the science of sales. Right. She was way more excited than the cost of that investment to come down while she was at peak excitement. Guess what I said next, Rena? All I need is a credit card to secure All I the need spot. is a credit card. Oh my God. Yep. One call close. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't do a second call. And if you don't have a credit or debit card and you are serious, you're going to go to Western Union. I'll find one for you. Oh yeah. And it's, it's 1200 bucks or six payments of 200. A lot of people can pay 200. Right. Very few people finished the payments. And if you don't finish the payments, you never come. And oh we just God. put the money in our mattress or something and sleep. Right. Right. So that is why it was such a cash cow. It wasn't even just the fact because there, there were talent agents there. It was a beautiful production. The events are amazing. It was a real event. It wasn't a fake event. It wasn't Fry Fest. It was a real event. People loved okay. it. All right. There was so real good. scouts there. But, you know, most people shouldn't be in front of a scout. It's like American Idol. You know, people learned eventually, but it, it would be like a, just an open casting call like American Idol. How many of them are going to be in the finals? You know, and by the way, they don't even vet them. At least they vet them and then put them in front of the judges. There's not even any of that. So it's probably a disaster to actually, you know, see half the people there. They just shouldn't have been there and it's not their fault. And so I don't know how much money they pocketed, you know, of the, oh, I paid 400, I got eight to go. I paid 600, I got six to go. Millions of dollars. Oh my God. Millions of dollars for sure. So, you know, that was the environment I was in. And it was to this day, the highest quality leads that were the easiest to convert that I've ever had. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Wow. This one kid came in, his name was Jacob and he walked in because there's always new people coming in, always people getting fired. Half the room got fired my first week. I talk about in the book, the first yeah. week, the guy that I talked about was so great. He came and just fired half the people there. It's like, whoa. So that was intense. But one day this kid, Jacob walks in. I thought it was Justin Timberlake. I really did. You know, because the boy bands would come to the headquarters sometimes. And, you know, we're always kind of looking around for Lou. You know what I mean? It was very ambiguous, but this kid, Jacob walks in. I'm like, oh, he must, you know, I thought he was in one of the boy bands and he was, but it was one of the ones that got this assembled. So what Lou Pearlman would do is the people he liked, keep them in his network by just throwing them into the boiler room and having them do sales. Do you remember times. your first time ringing the bell? I remember I broke the comp plan for whatever reason, probably because I wanted to be famous, maybe because I'm very trustworthy over the phone and I am a trustworthy person. And I was sold that like, shit, Lou Pearlman, what am I supposed to say? You know, it was very easy for me. I, I almost was like a hundred percent conversion rate of every call, but most people weren't. So even, you know, some people that were there, they were terrible and they sounded shady and it, you know, the way that I just talked through it, you know, there's certainly some talent on my end and Devin's end, you know, they're not all layups, you know, but at the same time, I just don't know what someone could do to replicate it. And I've been trying and that's what I teach because I've been in the other kind of boiler room. I was at a company called Dial America to kind of juxtapose the experience and they hand you a two page script and there's a like 
big paragraph, like freaking huge in the middle. And you have to read it verbatim without them interrupting you. And if they interrupt you, you have to start over. And that has to be on a recorded line because obviously just a scam. All these companies were doing this recorded line, right? Nicole, she wasn't done when she was done with me. So, okay, send you over the event organizers. They'll take you through the next steps. And then on that call, they would get the recording of the consent. You understand it's $1,200. You understand if you don't pay all 12. Crazy, crazy. So I've just been trying to teach people the right way to do it. What were the things that were great about that experience? Because let me tell you, these calls were awesome, but everybody won. It was truly a win, win, win. You know, I enjoyed the calls. The lead loved being on the call and then the call converted. So the company loved the calls, you know, it was great. And so when I think about... Dial America, where I'm selling a credit card to some lady in Omaha who's doing it so she can get two flights to Hawaii, maybe. I think that was how it worked. It was a nightmare. It was, it was Dial America. It, it was, you know, phone book, Dial America. It really was. And it was miserable. I, I lasted one day. I couldn't be there. I had already had good leads. See what I'm saying? I already had good leads. Once you have good leads, you're not calling the bad leads ever again. Interesting. So I then went up to Cleveland. I met my wife. I had to get a real job again. I went into sales up there, this time for Quicken Loans, a legitimate organization with a billionaire who's not in jail. You know what I'm saying? And now they're Rocket Mortgage. They're, they have a different name now. But I was doing, you know, calling internet leads in 07 that wanted to refinance. And it, it wasn't as easy as the actors and, and models and, and the calls at lose, but they were so good at teaching it and understanding what the features and benefits were and understanding what the objections would be and knowing what to say when those things happened. They even had a call clip library where you could go in and say, you know, I'm having trouble when somebody says they don't want to give me their social. And you could go right to moments in calls with the top bankers at the company and listen to them in that same moment. That's smart. That seems ahead of the curve, actually. Oh, my God. Companies die to set that up when I tell them about it now. Yeah. Now, I will say they probably built their own internal technology at the time. They sort of, um, like a lot of companies, built some stuff, probably bought some stuff. But nowadays, Gong is a company that is, if it plugs into every sales call you make, that type of data is now available to you. It listens to the calls. It can mm. search the calls by keyword. See what I'm saying? So you could have a call library of every call where the word commission came up that ended successfully. See what I'm saying? Crazy good. I want that for my company and I don't have it. So yeah, I was ahead of the curve. And so it was, it was tricky. It's kind of like a heat map for your website. Mm -hmm. How are people interacting there? I know you mentioned that in the book too. Everything can be tracked now. Yeah. To the level of being so creepy, people are opting out of all the tracking, right? The pop-ups and- Right. That was know. another thing that you talked mm -hmm. about in the book from the beginning of your sales career until now, like how many things you can unsubscribe out of and how mm -hmm. you need to attract leads versus cold call yeah. them. I mean, the thing is, there's a lot of boiler rooms like that out there that have did people the wrong way. There's so many industries too that are still thinking that's the right approach. I know. And people are pissed. <laughs> I mean, I can't tell you, like, I love my life and I feel blessed. And I, I actually have super thick skin. I've been putting content on the internet for almost 15 years. And I, very early Facebook page, very early 
YouTube, you know, audio, all this stuff, Google Hangouts, podcasting. I'm already like retired from podcasting. Everyone's starting podcasts, but the more you put out and the bigger it gets, the more criticism you receive. And it is often personal in nature. They attack your physical appearance if they don't like your questions and stuff. It just, I don't know where that, because I'm not that way. I could never even relate to that. I would like to know a little bit more about the evolution of your content. I mean, that is crazy, 15 years of doing it. I actually connected with a couple of your connections and got a couple of questions for you. And one of them sent me your water cooler conversations. Mm -hmm. You know what? Let me bring that up now. This yeah. One. So one of the questions was yeah. from Amit Buddha. Is that how you say his name? Buta? Yeah, it's Amit, but he says, okay. Amit, you know, he's a great guy. Yes. Amit okay. Buta. So one yep. of the questions is from Amit. Big fan of his. He said that he is a leader at a real estate team. Mm -hmm. It's all in, in Miami. Yep. And he hires a lot of new agents. What advice would you give them to be successful? For a new agent? Yes. Do you mean through the marketing and sales lens? I'm guessing yes. like sort of, yeah, it's tricky. It's a great question. People ask it all the time. I always just try to simplify stuff back to being from Polk County. So if you're successful, you have a lot of money. And if you're new, you have a lot of time. So when you're successful, you have a lot of money, you hire people, you know, awesome people, preferably. But when you're new and you don't have a budget, you have to talk to people for free. And it's a little bit of elbow grease required. And so what I, what I would recommend any new agent to do is make a list of where can I spend my time creating content and building relationships and networking and all these other things? Where can I do that where I will get in front of as many people as possible that matter without having to pay? And there are places on the internet where great content spreads way past your own people and helps you grow, you know, and if, organically. And then there's places on the internet that don't. Now, TikTok and Reels, the, the way that they blew up just 10,000 views in the first three minutes, like, damn, what are they doing over there? Those are two sort of obvious ones where you put a video on YouTube and publish it. If you don't have any subscribers, no one's going to see it. You put a video on TikTok and it's decent. The thing's got a hundred thousand likes and a million views and you get 12,000 followers. You have to identify the places where, where can I get in front of the people beyond the people I know and for free? <laughs> you know, that's really the goal. So I would do a hybrid of really good organic digital marketing. Like you won't have time for SEO later. You won't have time to blog later. You won't have as much time to do videos later. You won't have as much time to figure out how to use Twitter properly later. You see what I'm saying? You won't probably have enough time to sit down and figure out what your Instagram stories that do best are and how you could do more of those later. See what I'm saying? So later, you don't have the time. Now you do. So you just do those things. In a dream world, you'd hire somebody to do all your marketing. What would you throw in their lap? Well, you just got to put it in your own lap to start. I don't like screaming into the abyss. So you asked earlier, how has my content changed over the years? I will say that there's a theme that carries through that most people miss, which is that you can live on the spokes and you should. Do you know what I mean by that? Tell me. Blogs and YouTube videos and call it webinars and podcasts. There's stuff that's long form. And most people forever, you know, they would put on their website. So create a piece of content, publish it as a blog post, get that blog post out there. And then that blog post drives traffic back to your site. Some of those people become a lead. Some of those people get cookied and retargeted, right? I mean, that's been the playbook forever. And so the, the hub would have been, in that example, the website. The spoke would be email marketing that sends them there. 
Your Facebook page sends them there. Twitter sends them there. Those are the spokes. Well, you should live on the spokes. Does that make sense? You should create content that is built for those places. And none of those places like links back to your content. None of them. They like people using their website, not yours, right? And I heard Gary Vaynerchuk say this one time. And again, the things that stick, and he gives a lot of advice. And, and you know, same thing with my other mentors. A few things have really stuck. And well, listen, I start talking about Gary V, you know, he's awesome. And I start coming up with all of these other questions and and sort of, well, legacy is greater than currency. I have all these things that go through my head because he's such a, a great business person. But he said, as soon as people figure out that it's a brand play, not a marketing play, as, as soon as people realize that social media is about branding, not marketing stuff really takes off because when your goal is to put a piece of content on Instagram that gets in front of as many people as humanly possible, it just quite simply can't be self-serving. Ooh, that's a good point. When did you figure that out? Day one, my content has been help, not hype. I have been practical, actionable X's and O's about marketing sales and tech since day one. So that is who I am. And that has not changed, but the spokes change sometimes. And the Even way your you book do, is mm -hmm. practical tips. Very much. It's a textbook. My business partner at Curator, he said it's going to be on people's desks, not their shelf. Because the, the reality is, do you do any email marketing podcast or for your company? Yeah. Okay. So the next time you go to send an email, if you, you know, oh, we need to write our newsletter. We need to, you know, we haven't sent an email in a while, whatever it is, you would go to the index. Okay. It's very different than a normal book. And that's why I think it has such a cult following because people are used to the one big idea book, you know, and I'm very practical. This is another one I co-authored for the real estate industry with Phil M. Jones. And it's like 33 magic words. It's literally say this, and here's why, and here's how why it works so good, all practical from day one. Yeah, and you would go to the email marketing in the index, you would find quickly where that's at in the book, and then you would have probably like five email ideas that are better than yours right away. And they're not even so much a template as a concept that's repeatable. It's a, it's a strategy that's mixed inable. So does that make sense? One is called the apology email. And I had to send this one last week. I saw that because you did, did you? some sort of Christmas bonus. Oh my God. Tell I tried. the story really quick. <laughs> yeah. Well, I tried, it was called the 12 days of Christmas. I was raising money for charity, all in a good cause. I know people aren't, you know, always wanting to give money, but I have a large audience. So I tried to figure out a way where people that didn't have the money to give could just kind of give their attention through likes or shares or whatever. And it, it was so complicated to track it all. Long story short, I was spending money on prizes to try to raise money for this charity. And then the, I was spending more on the prizes than people were donating. And, but there was still like three or four of the 12 days left. There were some cool prizes, like some Jordans and <laughs> thank you. Freaking gave a guy a Lamborghini for, yeah, that's for a crazy. night. Yeah. It was really cool. It was such a fun contest, but it just didn't work. It was too complicated. Back to keeping things simple is really my MO. It was way too complicated. I should have just made it about the kids in the shoes. That's enough. I don't, you don't have to go further than that. You don't need any salacious spin or cleverness in addition to the fact that you're raising money to put kids, shoes on kids that are poor. And here's what it does for their self-esteem. And if you've had a great year, go donate some money. You've probably been wanting to. You've probably been putting it off like me. Like I should have just did that. And that's what I did at the end. <laughs> and it actually worked really good. And people just started donating, by the way, in the apology email. And I said, 
No more gimmicks, no more prizes, nothing. If you donate, you're just doing it because it's going to make you feel good. The 12 days of Christmas are over. More people donated on that one than all the other ones because it was straightforward. But the apology email concept, if you sort of, okay, let's 30,000 foot view, the apology email is the equivalent of a train wreck. It's impossible not to turn and watch, even though it may be ugly. I screwed up. I'm sorry. Well, I did one. Amazon messed up. And they did. The release date of my book was one date. They messed up. Amazon and sort of messed up. I combined those two ideas, blew up. I mean, it killed it like for open rate and, and all the metrics that people track. So the apology email, the faux quiz, the nine word email, man, there's a bunch of really good ones. And so that is how I would leave you would just be whatever is the thing that's important to you in marketing or sales right now. I've tried to just build this where you can go right to that. I, I don't need you to read about my background. I don't need you to like reminisce about the boiler room like we did today. You can. It's great. I love talking about it. I, I think I've had a very interesting career. But at the end of the day, there's just some guy out there right now and he just wants to be a little bit better at Twitter. And there's some girl that just wants more TikTok followers. And there's some college kid that just wants to write copy and wants to blog and do research and keywords. And, you know, there's, there's all these different people in the world that have all these different goals. And some people are good at the beginning of their sales calls and they suck at the end of them. Some people are good at the end and they're bad at building rapport throughout. So it doesn't matter that they're good at the end. There are real problems and challenges in this profession on both sides, marketing and sales. So I just want to be someone that's willing to say, do this, do this. I'm, I'm willing to tell people what to do. And a lot of times there's a lot of beating around the bush in these meetings. And I'm a quick thinker and I've been doing this a while and I usually come up with a really clever idea really quickly and then we just get back to work. So the last thing I would leave you with, I have to run, it would be if there's something that you want to think about doing in an effort to do better at all the stuff I teach, which is basically social media and sales, what you probably should do is you probably should focus on like, what is the thing that I can do that's amazing. Like, don't think about where, think about what, what are you uniquely qualified? What is your story? What is your Lou Pearlman, right? What is your experience and skill set? Because, and this is the exact phrase I wanted to use, original creative ideas are scarce. So I would go figure out how do I build a world around me, an infrastructure, a reality that incubates and nurtures and, and I train and I study and I, I deploy creative, original ideas because those are so, so far between. Thank you, Rena. I love that. Thank you awesome. so much. Good chat. We'll talk soon. I'll follow up with you. Now, let's switch it over to Grandpa. Your interview with Chris Smith sounds like a common name, and yet he's trying to follow greatness so that he can be great too. And isn't that what all of us want to do is shoot for the moon or shoot for the stars. And the way to do that is to have good mentorship, is to have encouragement and to be enthusiastic and, and love what you're going to be part of or do, to do. He was fortunate enough to be grounded by 
extremely talented athletes that could make it big, just as, you know, it reminds me of that story in search of Bobby Fischer, okay, when I was playing chess, where you really want to surround yourself and get lessons and, and be around, you know, the greatest players around so that you can collaborate and get your game up where you can conquer the world. Isn't that what people want to do in business or in sales or in engineering or in science? You want to be able to develop and create new methods, find new undiscovered opportunities, searching out to find your path and to try to be creative and find something new and find your own niche. And that's what Chris says really at the end is that he really grew up learning both sides of the railroad tracks, uh, knowing what it is to be poor and being around kids that are having a blast just playing in the mud. And yet, just because someone is from a well-to-do family, that doesn't necessarily mean that their opportunities are really any better. You have to really be able to be real, be able to go for it. And you have to have the willpower to want to succeed. Motivation is the key there. And that motivation, sometimes when you're hungry, you fight harder than those that are sitting on the couch with their feet up. <laughs> That's for sure. Well, I'll tell you, also very interesting in this episode is how his niche is turning out to be learning how to communicate. As you know, you know, if you bring up these timeshares where they're trying to have you buy a piece of, of a property where you own it for a week and make it so exciting and try to sell you on the glamour of it all and, and where you can take these trips all over the world when you really do the math of what, what you're actually paying for, you're paying probably 50 times what the value of the real price really is. When you put all this color and makeup on, it just sounds so wonderful that a lot of people get sucked into it. And I think Chris is trying to say that even though he got involved in some of these type of things, doesn't everybody want to sing and be famous and, and have a chance to go to Hollywood or someone that, that will actually see these motivational influencers, whether they have the money or not, make the down payments, even if they don't even pay it out, where they're just dreaming and hoping for somebody to give them some secret path to success. And unfortunately, there is no secret to success where you can just pick up a formula and just plug it into your computer and all of a sudden you're rich. It takes a lot of energy and hard work and determination and trial and error and scratching and working day and night, even many sleepless nights, to even have a chance to get into the game of success. What did you take from his relationship with his dad that was a cop? Well, what's interesting is that his father was a toolmaker. His father became a policeman, which seemed to be a step up from his father. And Chris really wanted to also continue that legacy of trying to be a leg up or to be better than the previous generation. And that, that's the dream even in, in my own family. My grandfather wanted my father to be better than him and have better opportunity. And my father wanted me to have also the same ambition to do better and to achieve and to be the best man that I could be. And then, of course, I would want my children and my children's children to have the opportunities to do better than, than me as well. I think that that is something that families should all be striving for, is to give each generation a better and better opportunity and to learn and be able to have access to learning and to have access to all the tools that it takes to have a chance to be more and more successful. I think Chris's father, a policeman, seemed to also 
want to be righteous and be fair. And he was happy in his own skin. He was happy raising a family. He was happy to be part of a community and looking out for it. And his dream was to hope that his son would have better opportunities. He's trying to really help other people succeed. And by doing so and building his network and, get, and keeping it simple and straight and giving people some answers without all of the fluff, which he has seen also in his profession, to see if people can get ahead that way. He's seen it both ways, just like seeing it when he was growing up, kids from both sides of the railroad tracks. I think we all would like to be in a position where we can be happy in our own skin, but seek out others that want to be uplifted and want to be better. I think all of us want to be better if we can. Better call daddy. And when in doubt, better call daddy. Thanks for listening to the Better Call Daddy Show. Now you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and TuneIn. If you've enjoyed this episode of the Better Call Daddy Show, please feel free to review it at ratethispodcast.com slash bettercalldaddy. Add Better Call Daddy Podcast on IG at Rena Friedman Watts on LinkedIn.com. Better Call Daddy.